you know, you got to get out and you got you got to go out and you, you got to be a lion. You all right. You got to go out and you have to act sitting around saying this is bad. It's not going to be enough. My guest today is the host of the Charles Love Show on AM560, The Answer out of Chicago. He is also the author of several books, including his latest called Race Crazy, BLM 1619, and the Progressive Racism Movement. I am so honored to be speaking with Charles Love. Charles, are you ready to roar? I am ready to roar. I had a feeling you would be, Charles. And um, let's just kind of start right there because you are out there um, expressing yourself, um, trying to provide some solutions to some problems that you see in the culture here. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, you've already been out there roaring. So how did this kind of start for you? How did you first take interest in politics? And how did you decide uh, to put your own voice out there in this conversation? Well, I think my starting this is a little different than most and it's not really a correction it's an evolution but you mentioned in politics and i think at the beginning what kind of thrust me in it and made me speak about it was political but i kind of moved away from that pretty quickly as we spoke about earlier but it, it went culture politics culture so i noticed a cultural shift and i thought it was odd but like most people i think a lot of people notice it in varying degrees but what the vast majority of us do is we see something crazy in a news story or somebody do something extreme we go man you see that that's crazy and then we go on with our life we don't look mm-hmm. at it and dissect it and say i wish i had that in me sometimes <laughs> to just say, oh, there's that crazy thing. Whatever. Let's go have a beer. Right. And once you start paying attention to it, you can't do it anymore. But the most people, that's what they do. They don't dissect it. They don't say, uh, what does this say about the larger narrative? They just say that person's odd or that thing is a little odd and they kind of chuckle or they shrug and they move on. Mm -hmm. So I was like them. I started to notice things, but I didn't say anything. And then politically, I started to write and, and speak out only because I'm a student of history and though I wasn't talking about it all the time, I had, you know, just a very good knowledge of the history of the world and America. Um, and I started to hear people talk about things. So a lot of people don't know as much as we would expect them to know, people who pay attention to uh, current events. That's not really an issue. It's like it goes to the old saying of, uh, you know, it's one thing to be ignorant. It's another to open your mouth and start speaking and tell it, let everybody know that you are. So it's never really an issue because most people aren't talking about it. But after Obama won the first his uh, first election, I started to hear a lot of people professing this wisdom and talking about things political. And they were wrong about basically everything they said. So I'm like, well, you know, and I wasn't tied to a party. It wasn't me trying to justify or defend any particular politician or ideologist. It's like, well, what you're saying just doesn't make sense. You know, it was things like no politician had ever been attacked, uh, you know, and and ridiculed the way uh, Republicans attacked Obama. And I said, huh, because last time I checked, seven of them got shot. It's, it's kind of extreme. Uh, it seems a little right? worse. <laughs> uh, and, and these were, I, I, I was in Chicago at the time. 
So I'm like, going down downstate to the uh, Lincoln Museum and just walk through the um, exhibit where they talk about the things that were written in, in public, regular publications about him. So this is not new. I mean, I, I think, you know, we had some politicians shoot each other. I mean, you know, some bloody beatdowns yeah. with a cane in the Capitol. So, I mean, let's just... Stop. The good old days. Right. Let's just stop with this. No one has ever been disrespectful to this guy won presidency. But then they said all these just things that is just flat out wrong. It's not even about will this fix crime or will this fix this? It's just just factually inaccurate. So I started to write about that. Maybe you should know more if you're going to speak out. I like that you're engaged, but you should probably know what you're talking about. So that's what I started to write. And it kind of evolved from there. And um, so I did that and I kind of stopped for a couple of years. And then the culture just took an extreme. I saw five years ago, four or five years ago, what we're seeing now, I hate to sound so prophetic, but it's in writing and I can prove it. And I saw this stuff happening. So in 2017, I started writing about my second book was uh, We Want Equality, how the fight for equality gave way to preference. And I started to talk about how pretty soon you're going to hear people no longer talking about equality. I didn't say equity at the, at the time, but I said that they're going to be saying they want everything to be equal regardless outcomes, race, gender, everything, everybody to have the same slice of pie warm to the same temperature with the exact same flavor of ice cream on top. And if you <laughs> deviate from that, it's not fair. I said, this is going to happen and people are going to start to slowly get on board with this. And people looked at me like I was crazy. And the biggest thing was, so the book came out, people talked about it a bit. I got an opportunity to do radio. So now I'm talking about the culture because I said the culture is the key. People think they're going to fix this problem by winning elections. Might have been the case 20 years ago, but I'm like, you let this go way too far now and you're not going to win it through legislation. You're going to have to get people involved. So I'm talking about this and everybody else was only talking politics. But now look at where we are now. Yeah, we found ourselves in this place where everything is politics. You know, the things we used to go to for an escape, uh, be it a football game or what have you. Now you go to those places for escape and it's politics still. So it's almost hard to even find exactly where that line is between politics and the culture, which I I think is, you know, that's, that's why you are so focused on the culture. Right. Well, it's twofold to that. That's true because people politicize everything. And I jump in. So you have people who are left leaning, right leaning, whatever the political ideology, and they get in this fight. And I'm just kind of the weird one who steps in the middle. Is like, I agree with you both that this is a problem. Doesn't matter which one of you may be closer to the truth. Bottom line is, you're not going to fix it politically. So regardless of what you're talking about, if you're talking about education, right? I agree that education is a problem. Most people on the right think it's a problem. Most people on the left think it's a problem. They think the problem's different, but they think it's a problem. But you're not going to solve it by hiring the right president or the right governor. If there's an education gap, whether it be race or class, and some people, you got a group of students that can't do math or read at grade level. They're, it, traditionally, it, the math is a little bit better than reading. So let's say they're 10th graders, reading at the sixth grade level, doing math at, math at a seventh or eighth grade level. Whatever caused that bad policy, uh, a bad leftist policy, as the right would say, or racism. Whatever calls it, this is where they are. No one's saying, what do we do for those 10th graders now to get them up to speed so five, six, seven years from now, they aren't struggling to survive. No one's saying that. And I can tell you, it's not hiring or electing the proper politician, right? So Mm -hmm. even though we politicize everything, vaccines, food, obesity, 
TV programs. We politicize everything, but the root of the problem is in politics, right? And that's what I try to tell people. I said, so you want to beat up on your Democrat mayor in these cities or your Republican governor in Florida, but you're acting as if whatever problem outside of COVID being fairly new, whatever problem you're arguing about is new. It's not new. Poverty didn't start last week. Crime didn't start two years ago. Did it get worse in some areas? Yes. But the root cause of the problem was already there and you weren't addressing it. So I try to push back on the attack from a political standpoint, saying that that's right. Because what it does, too, is it just makes you run to your team for most people. Right. right. So maybe the Democrat in your area, Democrats are crazy, but the Democrat in your area is a sane guy and he has some good points. But you won't listen to him because the same letter next to him is the same letter next to Nancy Pelosi or AOC or whomever you don't like. So I think. Just like the book is titled Race Crazy, because I think we're so focused on race. It doesn't say that racism and race can't be part of the problem. It's that if you have a problem and you need to address the root cause and there are five to seven causes, but you only see one. What if it's not the biggest one? What if racism is a problem in crime education, this, that or the other? But if you rank them in in order of, of importance and how much they cause that problem, racism is sixth on the list, but it's the only thing you're looking at. How do you solve a problem if you're ignoring the top five issues? And that's what we look at. So when I say the culture, this thing was shifting far to the left before we started to make everything political. That's what I'm saying. It's just kind of like uh, what we're doing now, right? It's kind of like some, the reaction to it, but the cause of it wasn't really political. All right, Kitty. So speaking of getting political, I want you to go get political with my friend Jim Duncan over at the Independent Riot. I have been on his show, and he really takes an interesting look at the kind of stories you don't normally see talked about in politics, uh, whether it's Chinese organ harvesting, for example, or a look at the history of the CIA, a deep dive on the deep state. The Independent Riot is kind of like Alex Jones without all the yelling and screaming. You got to check out my friend Jim Duncan. You can find the Independent Independent Riot on YouTube or on your favorite podcatcher. Check out the Independent Riot. What do you see as the primary cause of race being pushed to the forefront here? I mean, is, is it is it? Uh, I guess what I'm asking is if it's is it? Do you think it's more of a natural cultural shift that has occurred, or I mean, you get into this in the book, so there's a, definitely a way you could look at it as being extremely intentional and extremely insidious. So I'm just kind of curious where you see as the root of this shift, where not only, you know, it's not just about seeing racism as a problem or as an issue, it's about you have to see it as the number one issue and filter everything through that issue. And if you don't, you are now racist. So how did we get here? Don't forget, it has right. to be everyone, right? So everyone must be involved and everyone has is, is part of the problem. So yeah, you, you kind of indicated it. I definitely think it's intentional. I don't think this is a natural cultural trend. Um, it's being pushed. And because people were afraid to push back or didn't push back, people are pushing back now, which is great. But now you have to push back differently. I'm sure we'll get into because you waited so long. So if the problem wasn't as bad as it is now, maybe you can, maybe you could, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe 15 years ago, you could have fixed this legislatively. All I'm saying is today you can't, right? Because it's everywhere. It's like, you know, a disease. It's in the it's in K through 12. It's in um, the education system. It's in entertainment. It's in the media. It's everywhere. So if all the levers that control the country are, look, I mean, look at the president. 
the first thing he said, you know, for somewhere between seven days and two weeks into his presidency, yeah, he got up there and said, you know, I'm going to make race the center of my administration. And I am going to call that every department head uses race and looks at race as part of their solution to whatever they're trying to solve. If, if they're looking at traffic, if you're looking at uh, aviation, if you're looking at economic progress, if you're looking at the treasury, race needs to be a factor, right? So if everyone, and then no one pushes back and the media says good for him, then of course it seems normal. But I don't think the shift is normal. I think that, and I don't think that most people really care about it, right? I think that the powers that be and the people who have the loudest voices and the microphones are doing it. But if we can get people to take a step back and just look at it from a common sense and, and logical perspective, if the, at the very least, it would bring up some questions. So maybe you'll say, huh, so the country is racist and it was built on racism and it's in the system and it's in the DNA. Yet, all the prominent blacks who are speaking about how bad it is and how, how the country is bad are very both well-known, so they've garnered fame from this, and wealth. So you're telling me in a country that hates blacks, now I can see how in a country that hates black, you can move up, a few token blacks can move up if they dance for whitey and do what the racist man wants them to do. Okay, I'm giving you, know, like as in the book, I give them their argument. But explain to me then how a country that's racist against blacks that's built on anti-black racism will elevate people who are calling them racist. So mm. you, you have to start by asking people simple things like, would you know the name of Nicole Hannah-Jones? Would you know who she was? Would she be a professor? Remember, she was a journalist. She's not an uh, academic. Would she be a, a professor at a, at, a, at a major college? Would she have a number one selling book? If she wasn't spending her time talking about how racist the country is and therefore blacks are limited in their opportunities. I think any honest person, regardless of their beliefs, will say no. So then you have to ask yourself, so why would a racist country allow her that level of prominence? Right? What's the question? <laughs> I mean, what's the answer to the question? Why would they do it? I, I mean, they wouldn't if they're really, if they're really racist. Of course not. Um, so I, I'm curious that just like thinking through the perspective of someone like Nicole Hannah-Jones, like, do you think someone like that is a true believer. Yes. You know, do you think they really feel they are oppressed and can't see look around them and see like how you how what what a great success they have achieved in life based on the concept that they were oppressed and you know how that it, there's a circular logical issue there. That's important especially when I talk to conservatives. People have to understand we can't fight this one way because they're not all the same. See, conservatives look at this and say, well, they're all united and they push in one direction, which is true, but they're doing it for different reasons. Some do it for a political expediency, right? That's like, I know if I get enough people on board, I can drive. I mean, I know most blacks vote for Democrats, but the turnout varies. So the key isn't to convince them to vote for me. The key is to get them to go out and vote. So maybe I join for that. Some people doing it for money. You hear a lot of people on Twitter calling people grifters. I don't think most of them are grifters. But some of them are. Let's be real. Henry Rogers is a grifter. He is. But I don't think Nicole Hannah Jones is. Right. So you have people who truly believe it and people who are saying it because they, they want to make money. And it's hard to notice. Right. Because if you see somebody successful and they're saying this kind of stuff, you're like, they can't believe this. Ah, must be a grifter. But not necessarily. They may believe it because they hear it. It's, it's you know, confirmation bias. 
I, I give one example I use all the time. Real world example, non-celebrity, non-famous people, regular everyday Americans. I have personal friends who are upper middle class and successful. And they will tell you, not as extreme as Nicole Hannah-Jones, but they'll tell you that there's systemic racism. They'll tell you it's hard out here for Blacks. You know, I worry about my Black son because the police may shoot him or whatever. But the problem is, most people will hear that and assume they woke if they're on, on if they anti woke and attack them, or they'll just agree with them, or they'll say nothing. No, I ask the probing questions. I'm like, that's interesting. You think that? Can you tell me? Obviously, if it's so ubiquitous, you can obviously right off the top of your head give me an example. So, can you tell me the last time you personally, you know, had an experience of racism? To a person, its response is like one or two. One, you're going to be not be surprised by the other's going to make you laugh. So one will say something like, hmm, you know, the honest one. I can't even remember. You got a good point. I don't know. Probably at least 10 years. Hmm. 10 years. But you think it's so. Pro- anyway. OK. So some will tell you they can't think of one. The others and more and more interesting ones will say stuff like, oh, just last week I can give you an example. Oh, I'd love to hear this example, Bob. Well, I'm at work at the corporate office, you know, where I'm a VP and I get on the elevator. You know, I'm going up to the 28th floor, get on at 10. I hit 28 and I'm chilling. Door opens on 13. White woman gets on and she says, 17, please. You're probably <laughs> waiting for the rest of the story and waiting for no, the racism I, I, to come. Yeah, I, I get it, but that's quite the presumption. <laughs> no, no. I because I press story. the elevator for people all the time, you know, <laughs> that seems like a normal thing to do. Well, not only that, I, I, I heard the story and I said, oh my God, I'm a white supremacist and didn't know it. Because, you know, it depends on, you know, every elevator, picture in your mind, people. You got a lot of ele- elevators now in newer buildings that have buttons on both sides, but the old ones and many of them only have buttons on one side. So if I get on an elevator and the person that's already on is standing in front of the buttons, I'm not reaching in front of them. So I asked them to push the button. You decided you were the elevator operator when you stood in front of the button. Exactly. You have accepted right. that role accepted by standing right in front of the buttons. I mean, buttons. yeah, I might even throw a couple <laughs> exactly. coins in your hand and your white. You are now the elevator hand. operator. Right. So it could have been. Could have been that. But but here's the better part. Let's assume that white woman was a racist. If you're 40 something years old and you're a VP of a major corporation, you've lived plenty of years, you've seen a lot of stuff. And the only example of racism you can come up with, somebody asking you to press a button in an elevator. I think it's, you, you're going to the extreme if because of that you buy into what Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, says. So my point right. is, I know it's hard to tell. You listen to them enough, you will find some nuances. So so, yes, they can be true believers and still be successful. You know, it's got a, the twist of what I just said. You might say, well, Charles, you just said they're wrong for thinking that. And it proves that the whole country is not oppressed. But I said it proves they're not oppressed. I didn't say that they don't necessarily believe it. Sure. And to them, they might even see they, they, they might even see their success as proof that they're right, because perhaps in this one case, so many people can feel the oppression that they are relating to that it has driven their success, thus proving them right that they, while they are oppressed, that they've been able to achieve the success because of the oppression. Right. Not only is it a cycle, but they, they might, what they'll say is, yeah, well, 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 I'm not speaking for me. Like uh, Don Lemon would probably say, uh, now he's on the cusp. I don't want to say because he said enough things that were logical eight, nine years ago to make you say this. And he was an adult then. It's not like he was a child to make you say he can't really believe what he's saying. I have you on video saying just the opposite, sounding like me five years ago. So something broke you. But what they'll say is they'll say, well, yeah, I'm doing fine, but I'm speaking for the people who don't have a voice and they're all not doing fine. But here's the problem. 
And it's hard for white Americans who don't travel in circles with blacks or people, let's be real, people congregate and live amongst, you know, as, as Thomas Sowell say, they self-sort. So you traveling with people, especially as you get older, you, some of your friends fall out, fall off because you don't agree, not politically, you just don't have things in common anymore. You used to, you don't anymore. So you travel around the people in circles of people like you. So the more successful you get over a period of time, most of your friends are going to be somewhere close to you. So even most successful blacks don't really talk to regular folks. I'm not talking about poor people on the projects. I'm talking about, you know, bus drivers, restaurant managers, things like that. But, you know, I'm not an academic. That's what I did most of my life. And those are my friends. So when I talk to my friends, none of my friends who are. So more of my friends who are upper middle class say that there's a general oppression and systemic racism than my working class friends. Wow, that's really interesting. Right. So that's so cool. and they so my point is the Don Lemons of the world don't talk to Johnny, the bus driver. So. Johnny, the bus driver, I mean, maybe if you talk to enough of them, you'll find that there is a, a racist problem that they're dealing with that needs to be fixed. But to be fair, Don Lemon doesn't know it because he doesn't talk to them. He makes an assumption of what they may need. Then he speaks about what they need and says, this is what they need. And I know, well, think about the bus driver. This is what the bus driver needs, because you're never going to have a collective of bus drivers around saying, that's not what we need. Why is he saying that? Because they're not watching Don Lemon. The same thing for Nicole Hannah-Jones. The people who pay attention to Nicole Hannah-Jones are people like me, because I think what she's doing is bad, and people who agree with her, saying she's great. So, I mean, the rest of the people aren't paying paying attention to her or either one of us. Yeah, the the guy working his ass off all day uh, as a plumber or whatever is not coming home cracking a beer and listening to Don Lemon, (laughs) most likely. No, he's not doing that. He's not coming on talking about how the man had his thumb on him all day. He's not doing any of that. Right now. Now, what will happen is the closest it'll get to us. Uh, you know, we all have pluses and minuses, things that happen at work, a bad boss, blah, blah, blah. So they might have something that happened at work and they may be like, yeah, he probably did it you know, because I'm black. Or he probably would have been nicer to me if I wasn't. And then they move on. They don't say the whole system is rigged against them. They don't say all white people. You know, that's what I'm saying. It's not that. Because in my book, to be fair, I say that the 1619 Project is well written and I say there's a lot of facts in it. I don't say it's all fake, but what you leave out is really important, right? So the problem is they paint it as all. I mean, she claims to have corrected, but in the 1619 Project, the original in the magazine, Nicole Nicole Hannah-Jones says, whites are, whites did, whites feel, whites believe. So all of them? So, so John Brown, which sounds like a racist approach, just the other race. Exactly. Exactly. Because if you and you, you make a good point, because you would think people who have been at times, obviously oppressed, marginalized, lumped together, treated the same, assumed the negative just because of their skin color. And it still happens today, but in a different way. You think that we would be the last ones to do it? No, no, still do it. Um, I mean, the last thing I'll say about that is. Here's an example. So they say that blacks were treated in a certain way and they assumed all these things in this bad, which is true. And then they say it still happens today, but they never really tell you how. They just say, well, the system's set up for it. I say, no, I can give you some examples of how it happens. How about when you hear people, and this is something you hear from the right and left, and it, it pains me to no end, that blacks uh, commit X number of murders. Blacks commit more violent crimes. So the right will say stuff like blacks commit six times as many murders as whites. And the left will say the criminal justice system is unfair because it keeps locking up black men. Right. 
And both of them are wrong. And both of them could be. I'm not saying they, they are racist, but that can be taken as racist because in the let's t- t- tackle the right first. I'm a math guy. You're leaving a number out of the equation. So you may be factually right in saying that whites, blacks commit six times the murder of whites. But you don't tell me what the murder rate of whites are, because if that murder rate is for whites is 15 percent, then I would agree with you that blacks are genetically violent. And we should lock them up because, you know, six times 15 is 90. That means all most of them. Are right, that would right? be extreme. But right. but they don't tell you what the percentage is for whites. So I would ask people, I, bet, I used to go on shows and ask them all the time and nobody knew. Of course, when they guessed, they would guess high. I mean, they guess that it's low. But they still wouldn't guess low enough. Last time I checked, I think it was like 18 or 19, 2018 or 2019, it was 0.25%. So what you're saying is 0.25% of whites commit murder and 1.25% of blacks. So uh, 1.5, you know, whatever the number is at the time, it might be five times, six times, whatever. But the problem is it's still low. So they take the six times and they act like, see, they're all murdering. No, no, no. Less than 2%, right? And on the other side, they talk about it's unfair you're locking up black men. But it, now we don't Now This is bar common sense says you don't want somebody locked up if they're innocent. That's just silly. So let's say let's just assume for the sake of argument that every black man in jail did the crime he was commi- he was convicted of. So you're saying that we shouldn't lock up a disproportionate amount of black men, even if they're committing murder. We're locking them up because of what they did, not locking them up because they're black. Now, do you want them treated the same? Yes. Do you want them treated badly in jail? No. All that common sense stuff. Do you want them to get more time because they're black, blah, blah, blah. But what you're saying is what they're saying on the left is it disproportionately affects blacks. And they don't do this with just crime. Anything. If it's disproportionate, this is the Henry Rogers. I mean, the Ibram Kendi uh, school. If it's disproportionately affects blacks, then ergo, it's racist. Because why would it be more blacks that, you know, drop out, that have lower scores, that don't get as high as whatever it is. If it's disproportionate, racism is the only answer. And it's foolish. And so beyond that, not only is he wrong, but if he really cared about blacks, he can't fix the problem. He cannot fix the problem because he refuses to address whatever it is, the way they teach, the problem with the school. Maybe it's funding. Maybe it's parenting. Maybe it's whatever. But he won't even count. It's like, la, la, la. The problem is racism. I, I want to dig more into, you know, the content of your book, which really, I mean, I I knew somewhat about Black Lives Matter, a little bit about the 1619 Project, but man, the, the depth of, of research that you go into to really see what's behind these groups is really compelling. So we'll get into that in a minute. But first, I want to I want to learn, go kind of go tick back the clock a little bit first and go back to how you were raised and when where you grew up. And because like you said, like you're not denying that anybody has ever acted racist or that there is racism around. So I'm just curious, like what your own personal experience is, where, where, where did you grow up? And like, did, what kind of did you experience racism at, like growing up? And, and like, what was like, what was that like for you? I was born. Lord, a poor black man. In the <laughs> I got, I got, every time they ask me, I, I got to go to the jerk. Please do. <laughs> that's, a so great, awesome. that's a great reference. No. Everyone should go watch the jerk if you haven't. Yeah, you must watch it. It's great. After this interview. Um, I was born in Gary, Indiana. And uh, it's kind of similar now. But it, for those who don't know it, I guess it the, the city is kind of the same. Worse now because of some closed businesses, kind of manufacturing town. But the difference is it's not in the, on the map as much. Because it's, you know, like Chicago and other big cities, people have fled. So it's smaller. So people don't, today don't look at Gary as a city. So I want people to understand the con, you know, kind of close their eyes and think about what I saw when I was a child, go back. 
Because when I was a child, when I was born, Gary was almost 200,000 people. So it's a city. It's not, it wasn't like some small town. And there were whites there. We had the white flight. They elected the first black mayor in the 60s and 68. A lot of white people moved out. By the late 70s, most were gone. So when I was little, the town, and all the way through high school, we were probably the highest populated uh, black city in the country, more than Atlanta. There's more whites per capita in Atlanta than there were in Gary when I was growing up. Um, so it kind of gave me, gave me a unique experience in the sense that I see all the negatives that people my age and a little younger, a little older talk about from a racial perspective and crime and all that stuff. I saw that. And a lot of those people were black. But then all the successful people in my neighborhood were black, too, because the town was black. So, yeah, chief of police, the mayor, you know, everybody I knew, the, the, the city council, the lawyers, the doctors, all black. So it wasn't like you had this wholly negative view of blacks that some unfortunate blacks have in their community because all they see is negative. They see the perp walk on the TV. They see the movies. They see the neighborhood. So it didn't have that. Can, can we just uh, I just want to kind of stop there for a second. because I never had really thought about it that way. So and. and Maybe this is just my ignorance on on how pe- people grow up differently. So, you, like, there are you think there are people that grow up in certain areas and they only see perhaps like the, the negative imagery of their own race of, of people that, of their own, and maybe they see the same thing from the media. So they might grow up with a poor impression of blacks coming from from someone who's black just because of kind of how they've you know how they've grown up. Whereas someone like you, you live in a town where, like you said, no matter what level you were talking to someone on, whether it was the bus driver or the lawyer, they were all black. So you kind of got that full spectrum. So you you didn't have that own necessarily that that negative self-perception. Right. It, it took me a while to realize that because, you know, you you think your childhood is normal. I mean, unless it's really, really bad. You think your childhood is normal. Young, old, rich, white. Doesn't matter. You're like, this is what kids do. I mean, you know, this is what I did. I'm assuming you had the same childhood. Right. So I didn't realize that. You know, all my friends had the same childhood, so I didn't realize that. You know, until I, you know, go to college in that age and meet people, and they're talking about, yeah, the white people do this, that, or the other, and I'm like, mm-hmm. you know what? And it's like, you don't understand. Let me explain what happened in my neighborhood. I was like, well, I never saw any of those people. I mean, the only white people I saw were the people who resisted the white flight. So obviously, they weren't racist because they could have left when everybody else left. And they decided <laughs> to stay. You know, the old guy who, who on my block who was retired, like, I'm not leaving my house. I'm not staying. Or some of the teachers who stayed. We did. We had mostly black teachers, but we had some white teachers. They were all older. Like, none of the new teachers were white, but some of the older ones. Yeah, but I believe that's the case. And to prove the point, just think about it as a white person. So you grow up white in an all-white town. Middle class, working class, doesn't really matter. Let's not go upper middle class, though, because that's- you're describing my town. I mean, to be honest, to, that I grew up in, to be honest. Yeah. OK, so you grew up in that town and your parents, this is key. So your parents are uh, totally bland and vanilla. They didn't say anything. <laughs> that, is, that, that is a good description of my parents right. as well. So they don't say anything <laughs> racist. You never heard them say anything racist. Right. You never heard them saying, boy, that Martin Luther King was great. Civil rights is what we needed. They just never said anything about it. So you heard nothing. So all you saw growing up was. You know, I'm going to date myself, but you're talking late 70s to 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. All you saw was Huggy Bear on, on Star, <laughs> Starsky and Hutch. You saw the drug addicts, on uh, the drug dealers and drug addicts on different TV shows growing up. And the 10 o'clock news when you were in high school and watched it, perk walk, black guy getting arrested, black guy getting arrested. Yeah. Or cops. Right. Although, oh, yeah. yeah. In fairness, there was a lot of white people getting arrested on cops, too. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> but right before cops, you didn't see anything. But so you see black people getting arrested on TV. You know, they take that and they 
portray it in TV, in movies, because it's reality, but then you see that. So mm. all you, the only blacks you see are going to jail and you don't see it in your neighborhood. So what do you think about black people, right? Whether it's conscious or not. I mean, you, 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 you'd be surprised. Yeah. You see a black lawyer, you're like, wow, I've never seen one before, right? You don't mean it in a negative way. You just never seen one. So if you take a black kid from a neighborhood that, that uh, a, a mostly poor neighborhood, but from a town that's mixed, and, and most of the cops and most of the people in authority are white, the judges, the lawyers, city councils are white. And you see the same same stuff I, I mentioned on TV, but then you go into your neighborhood and the guy on the corner selling drugs is black, just like the guy on TV. So you don't think they all are. You just never seen a white person that did it. So you you <laughs> will equate drug dealer to white uh, to black guy. So of course it has a negative effect. It's the reason why the the upper middle class I, person I mentioned before says that they think that blacks are still struggling through systemic racism, even though they haven't experienced it firsthand. But they have to well, just look at the news. You see it all the time. But the news is picking the stories. You think they run every story? Right. right? There's 330 million in the country. They, people in the country, they got 30 minutes. Right. Or you'll say, well, look at this book. Or look at what this person. I saw this, you know, TED talk. But yeah, those are particular. You're not listening to all sides. It's not a, a completely well-rounded contextual conversation. So definitely, I think it would have that effect on people. All right, guys, I got to take a quick time out to tell you about our good friends, Carlos and Vanessa Abelar and their incredible CBD company. Paloma Verde CBD. You can find them at palomaverdecbd.com. And there is simply nowhere else you should be turning to for your CBD products, whether you use them for aches and pains, for dealing with a little of that insomnia, or just general stress. CBD is a fantastic resource without having to worry about getting all high or anything like that, uh, like you would from the THC component. Uh, this is CBD is purely the non-psychoactive part of the marijuana plant. Uh, extremely helpful for all, all sorts of things. Also for your pets, it can really help your pets too. And you can find everything you could possibly need. Tinctures, gummies, the gummies, my God, the gummies are delicious. You can find them all over at Paloma Verde CBD cbd.com but the best part is you got to use promo code roar and you will get 25 percent off any order over 75 dollars and free shipping that's right and free shipping check it out paloma verde cbd.com do not forget to use that discount code roar for a tremendous discount let's dive into race crazy and the you like i said you did a really extensive research on this to really find out more about what we talked about earlier the insidious nature of this is what, what I would call it, you know, that, that this is being directed by certain people. And when you actually find out kind of like there's there's the organizations we've all heard of. There's Black Lives Matter. There's uh, 1619 Project or what have you. Everybody's heard of those. Uh, and I think the average person, like even like the people that I know back from Los Angeles, I think most of the people that I know that support Black Lives Matter really only do so in this way that yes they're and i'm talking about black people or not black people i mean i think i know people that uh, uh, both that just kind of tangentially support black lives matter i don't think they know anything about the organization i think they just know oh yeah we're against you know kill you know disproportionate killings or killings at all and we we've heard there's a problem so we're going to support that but and I, I always had the idea that there was something more insidious behind it and, but you really go so many steps farther and are able to point out like not only are is there more behind these organizations there's more above these organizations so maybe you can get into that a little bit who are the organizations that are really 
kind of controlling sort of at the top of this web of 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 other organizations that are promoting promoting this racial narrative well the the two key takeaways you should read the book and get into the detail but obviously we we have a limited time can't go into detail so i'll say it's important to note that it's layered it is they are against patriarchy but also hierarchy so it's ground up right so they have no leaders it's like this weird leaderless thing um so that's important to note but also that these organizations now I, I try to give them the benefit of the doubt from the start saying i'm assuming they had positive intent when it was started who co-opted i don't know but they're not what they profess to be so it's important to understand because my target audience were the people you're talking about my goal was to get them not to make them republicans not to make them anything else was to stop turn the faucet off you know the the white executive was like hey police are killing people i support that i can't go down there and march and do all that i can throw them a couple bucks let me tell you who you're giving money to so i was doing the research to find out and and, and the last piece is important that i don't use or as, as rarely as i can uh, as, as I um, unless I have to. But when I use my resources, I don't use conservative sites. I don't use conservative papers because I know people will say, well, you're just some right winger. That's Fox News. So in this case, I'm quoting their own words from their own site and their own writings. And the point is that whether that I, I do explain my personal view and I say what I think they're wrong about. But the more important part is saying that even if you agree about what they say about policing, it's not what they're doing with the money. It's not what they're professing. They're deeper than that. So I point out how they're, t- they're not talking about policing anymore, right? This is an organization found to, founded to end police brutality, yet they're talking about cisgender patriarchy. They're talking about LGBT, uh, li- uh, elevating trans to, uh, people to leadership. They're talking about releasing everybody from prison, open borders, giving reparations to, um, to um, migrants. They're talking about no security in school, um, uh, increasing the minimum wage, um, uh, income dis- redistribution, all that kind of stuff. And you just you read this stuff. And you're like, what does that have to do with policing? You know, right. and what do we do? Because uh, it sounds like it's written by people who don't believe that they're bad people, like people have never murdered before. So you want to get rid of the police and the prisons. But they also don't like surveillance and they want to take down all the surveillance cameras. So what do we do when people murder? Just say, oh, well. What do you do? So I talk about that. And then the organizations to the layer. Yeah, you talked about the organization. So everybody knows BLM. And I write a whole section on the movement for black lives. And I even found them by looking up BLM because I had never heard of them. And their website is a crazy treasure trove of madness. Well-written, detailed. (laughs) They got acts they want to propose to Congress and all that kind of stuff. But I found it just by saying, hey, let me look up some stuff on BLM. Oh, I can't find. I'm going to look at, you know, some of their actual writings and I couldn't find anything. Well, maybe I'll try to find where the money goes. Couldn't find anything. Then I saw this one article about somebody giving them a hundred million dollars, but it didn't say BLM. It said some, some, some black led fund. So I looked up the fund and the fund was given to the movement for black lives. I looked up, I, I looked them up and it's all like, they have 170 organizations in this network, including BLM. And it's all kind of thing. Color for change. Uh, uh, it's, um, uh, uh, Asada Shakur's, Shakur's sisters in Chicago. It's all these little organizations, the This of Cleveland, the this, it's like all these organizations. So the problem is you give your money to uh, 
a, a fiduciary, a fiscal sponsor, which is a credible uh, nonprofit. They give that money to uh, the Movement for Black Lives, who gives some money to Black Lives Matter and two or three other organizations who give the money to this other organization, who gives the money to these little bitty small organizations that don't even have a website, that got 10 people that don't that aren't big enough to file any um, paperwork to the IRS. So how are you going to know where the money's going? Right. So. I, I write about how when Rand Paul was attacked at the RNC and he said, I'm going to get to the bottom of the funding. I was like, good luck with that. I wish him well. And then I say in the book, ain't going to happen. Like I've been working on this for a while. Ain't going to happen yeah. because, because it's, it's like the top is it's plausible deniability. So the first person you give money to got their paperwork in order and it's solid. Second people fine. After that is ghost. And there's no way you, even if you find it, which is hard to do, you're never going to prove that the Ford foundation or, or tie, the Tides Foundation knew what the third party down the road was doing. It's like, we gave our money to BLM. We gave our money to move for Black Lives. And then that's what we did. And we moved away. You think we know what each individual did? We have no way, no, no way of knowing what's happening. So that's what happens there. And, and does that kind of give them the plausible deniability when certain elements of those groups or maybe even just certain individuals are, say, inciting violence directly or, or something like that? Oh. They can say, well, we didn't give to that. We just gave to you know this movement. Right. We just want to, yeah. right. And the organizations are right when they say that. So so like I like to take using examples, tell stories so people understand. And so they don't think this is left or right. Let's take one of each. Planned Parenthood, NRA, right? especially Planned Parenthood, because they set up where they have organizations and they have offices, right? But if the NRA was doing some function and somebody from NRA, Illinois, did something and the NRA didn't like it, they would go in and put the kibosh on it, wouldn't they? They'd be like, cut that out, right? Cease and desist is a letter dragging you out of the office. You do something they don't want you to do in Planned Parenthood Chicago, they will shut you down. They will kick you out. BLM is not organized that way. When the woman in Chicago came out and said, looting is reparations, you know, the the people that we know as the founders of BLM, they, they had nothing to say. Right. Mm -hmm. She can say whatever she wants to say. See, we don't rep represent her. They are openly saying, you know, we let our grassroots people do what they want to do. So not only is, is your money not, they can say, well, we didn't, we don't have anything to do with that financially. They're like, you know, we don't tell those people what to do. So, I mean, it's hard to track. It's hard to find. And the key, if you go to the Movement for Black Lives web website, which is m4bl.org, you'll see all this detailed stuff. They have a preamble. They have pages and pages of, of this is the problem. This is the solution. These are our demands. All this stuff. There's lots of stuff. However, like BLM site, I bet you can't find a board of direction, directors. You can't find who wrote it. You know, obviously, whether you like it or not. Academics and, and, and lawyers and educators wrote that stuff, right? The average guy did not write that stuff. Why are they hiding? While they say, here are the people who, thanks to these 26 academics from these universities who put this stuff together, that's not there, right? Who's on the board of Movement for Black Lives? No, nobody knows. They're not going to tell you. But I can tell you, they've changed their site over times. I didn't get the capture. I captured stuff because I knew they were going to save it. I didn't get it at the beginning. But when I first found them, the squad, two of the squad, was, was, they were on the site. So, you know, holding up legislation they were going to mm -hmm. put. It was like the Movement for Black Lives and Rashid, uh, Rashida Tlaib do, does X, Y, Z. They're not on there anymore. There are no politician faces on it anymore. Mm. But, you, I mean, you can Google it. It's open. But they, they, think about this. Why don't they do any press? So they care about uh, the Black Lives Movement. They have $100 million. Have you ever seen them in the media? 
Ever see a spokesperson? I had never heard of this until until I read your book. Right. You don't see, but it's true. I mean, these are facts. You go Google it, you find all the stuff that I say. Yet they're not trotting people out on CNN or Fox News defending their positions. They don't have to. That's the point. They don't have to. Because the other organization, that's what what did I call BLM? I call BLM the organization, the chaos arm of the movement. You go out there, you flip over tables, you burn a few cars, you yell, you get a megaphone and say, what do we want? Right. And we'll just sit back here and we'll just type up legislation. We will be the nameless, faceless people. And you, you've dug even further. I mean, there, there are certain people, I can't remember the one, uh, the one woman's name who's like directly connected to Bill Ayers. So you can even go back and see these connections to these quote unquote, leftist or revolutionary type movements that have been around for decades here. Yeah. So BLM, if you go to their site, you could go to donate money. You know, it will be, which is not illegal. My organization does it too, because we're so small. You you can't go go through the paperwork and the time to be nonprofit, whatever, but you want to take nonprofit. So you get somebody who's bigger, who's, um, you know, aligned with your vision. Let's say it's given creating a food bank. You want to create a small food thing. So you get some national food bank to be your fiduciary. So you give them the money because you trust them and they're being vetted and they're not going to do anything illegal. And then you do whatever part. So they've changed fiscal sponsors throughout the time, right? So if you go on there and you go to BLM and you try to donate money, it'll give you the disclaimer of who the money really goes to, right? But that's changed a couple of times. It used to be thousand currents is what you're talking about. And thousand right, right. currents yeah. had, um, God, now I can't remember her name. It'll come to me though. There's so much information in your book. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I'm sure it's hard to just keep keep, keep it all, all these right, right there at the ready. Yeah, but she was on their board and she was a, a convicted terrorist, right? She she was convicted and and and, and caught in uh, a series of bombings, uh, illegal weapons, all that kind of stuff. Went to jail for it. Was convicted. A jury of her peers, Clinton, I think it was, pardoned her, and she was on this board. And this this organization was one of their their um, fiscal sponsors. It got out that she was on the board and they just swapped the fiscal sponsors. I think if you go to Thousand Currents, she's, they, their organization still says that they're affiliated with BLM, though. Wow. So I'm curious a couple of things. I want to get to like what, what you think some of these greater solutions are as we as we discuss like politics. If anything, politics is maybe, you know, 10 steps behind where, where the culture is going to be. Uh, but I'm just curious, like, how do you approach this in your own life? How do you approach these issues? Because I'm sure with your own fen- friends and, and the people that you know, or maybe people you grew up with, I'm sure to them, they probably a lot of them pro- anyway, probably have the, the same view of these of these movements that as being very benign and um, maybe even being non-political to them. So how do you how are you able to approach? these conversations and sort of uh, work this stuff in there in, in your own personal life well here is a slight slight small glimmer of hope great because that's what i that's what i want to look for here where's the where's the hope well most people <laughs> assume that and i gotta say for me personally i can't speak for everyone but they're wrong my friend think about this you mentioned your friends black and white back in la who thought a certain way but try to think about before george floyd what they said because I found this interesting. I don't think I put this in the book, but I might have because I was talking about BLM a lot. But before George Floyd's murder, I had never seen a black person wearing a BLM T-shirt. No person I knew outside of people, part of the organization. None of my friends, none of you ask my friends where they think about BLM. They're like, that's crazy. That's some crazy group that got hijacked by white liberals. That's what Hmm. the average black person I knew would say. Interesting. Even the ones who were were, uh, liberal, they'd be like, yeah. Nobody, nobody, nobody pays attention to those people. Now you see it. 
right? Because everything kind of just shifted from them. So that made it a little bit harder. But when I talk to people, see, that's what the key. I don't talk about politics. So getting to the solution, what I think you do, you'll find a shocking amount of people don't buy into this. Now, I don't know if it's a majority or plurality, but it's a big number. White, black, rich, poor, doesn't matter. It's somewhere, I mean, it would range based on where you are, city, rural, whatever. But I would say on the low end, 35%. High end, 75%. The problem is, I just said they're not watching CNN, they're not watching Fox News, they're not listening, reading the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. So the key is what you said. So I know the solution, knowing it is easy, doing it extremely hard. Right. We, need, we need everybody, all the people who are actively uh, understanding that this is a problem and speaking about it, to be their own little tiny movement, right? We need the Mark movement, the Charles movement, the Brian, the Bob, the Kevin, the Lisa movement. And so I talk to everybody. So my approach, if people did this, they'd be surprised, surprised about the impact and how quickly this would happen. So I talk to everybody about this. Now, I don't talk to everybody the same way. I gauge them based on their politics or their beliefs or something they, I catch uh, that they say that I can get an in, and that's what I talk about. But coworkers, Uber driver, getting an Uber, here's an example, getting an Uber, I'm going wherever, and I look at the guy's name, and I can tell he's Middle Eastern, or he's African, or you know he's a Black American, whatever. So based on that, I might ask a question about that. Where are you from? He has an accent. He says that. What brought you here? How long have you been here? How often do you go back home? And then based on where they're from, I get into a conversation about Ghana, a conversation about Nigeria, a conversation about, you know, Iran or wherever. And then they'll tell you why they do go back or why they don't go back. And they'll say something that will tell you they're not some extreme leftist. And you'll say, so what do you, so then that's your end. You say, well, what do you think about the people who think that this is a way of think uh, uh, that there's no opportunities for you as a black person? And they're like, man, I don't think that. And so now, you know, so if nothing else, if, if they sound a little off, you can plant a seed. But if they right. don't sound, they sound normal to you. Now you're encouraged because you're like, wow, the average people, you do enough of these. You're like, the average people don't think this. So the TV's telling me everybody's thinking this, but I'm running into regular people at Starbucks, the cashier at Target. You change the conversation based on where you are. You're in some business, they have a TV on and, and it's on the news on CNN and the topic is whatever. Like, what do you think about that? So, so you're not being political. You have some that thought. They give you that thought. And let's say it's a little uh, leftist, you know, kind of wokeish. You'll just say, well, don't you think this? You know, it could be crime. It could be whatever. Don't you think voter ID? I ask them a question. Well, don't you think this? And now most of the time, like, well, you got a point. Right. So it's like, well, so you got to think about that. Well, if they make that change that they're talking about making what kind of impact it'll have on you? Because then you give them how it impact them negatively. And then you walk away. But if we had. 200 million people, not even that, if we had, you know, 100,000 people doing that to everybody in their circle, how many people are we reaching, right? Each person could reach 10, 20, 30 people, right? So that's how you got to reach people because where else are you going to find them? If, they're, if you're talking about the people who matter because they get the vote and then the normative Americans, but they don't watch CNN or uh, Fox and they don't read the newspapers, they're likely not watching our podcast, they're just going about their life. They're not going to church, so you're not going to find them in the church anymore. How are you going to find them? You're going to find them in your daily interactions. So the, unfortunately, it's, it, it takes a little more time and it takes more people to be involved. But that's how you got to do it. You know, talking to, and talking about these issues without saying Democrats suck or Republicans are racist. Just say, do you think that um, 
you know, teachers should be the one telling their your your eight year old that he can change his gender. Now, if he comes to you and tells you that, that's a conversation between you and your family. And I'm not telling you that you can't do whatever you want to do with your kid. Do you want the teacher at school telling him to that he can pretend to be a girl at school? We'll even buy him a dress and he can leave it in his locker and not tell you. What do you think the average American will say? You know, <laughs> should I tell your ten year old that? You know, there was racism in the past and it still uh, uh, exists today. Therefore, you need to own your part and you need to understand how you play into the country's racism. What do you think about that? Most white liberals think that's BS. Because you got to convince them that it's happening. I'm curious what kind of backlash you receive from from these from these movements, if at all, like, are, are, do you get hit hard because you are going so hard after them? I mean, you, like I said, in this book, in Race Crazy, you really you go you, you don't leave anything, you don't leave anything on the table. I mean, you go, you go after these groups for what they are and you go after them really strongly. So I'm curious whether privately or publicly, what kind of pushback you've gotten? Well, the good thing is I get some. But my mom, but, but it's not from my target audience. So I don't care. My my audience, my goal is to convince People who are right-leaning, who already see it's a problem, the few who don't know it's a problem, wake them up, but to tell them, your approach is not working. This is the better way to, to say, read this book, go. Here's a tool, go speak. You're already doing it. Here's a way to you know, fine-tune what you're saying. And then the other audience is liberals. So liberals, you don't, you've never voted for a Republican, you don't like Republicans, but you love the, you're pro-America, pro-free speech, you're not anti-gun, you don't think every white person is racist, and you'd be damned if they're going to call you racist, the Bill Mars of the world. Dude, let's, let's fix this cultural divide that you see is happening and tearing the country apart, and let's fight about policy later, right? And because that's my goal, the only people who attack me are the far left, but I'm not really talking to them anything, nothing against you, I mean, you know. You know, I, I'm not trying to get people harmed or anything, but you're not my target audience. And I know I can't change you, so I don't really care. So Nicole Hannah-Jones has attacked me a couple of times on Twitter or I'll do I'll, I'll speak to anybody. Right. My, my motto is have logic will travel. So anyone who invites me on, I speak. You pick, pick a time. I'm there. You know, two people listening to your podcast, three million black or white, left or right, doesn't matter. But I find that. But I respect them once more. Like I did Fox Soul and they were respectful. They, they were really nice. Whether we agree or not, it doesn't matter. We had a great conversation. But most of the time, people on the left invite me on is to attack me. But I still go. Tavis Smiley asked me, you have to find that episode. He asked me, who elected me the Negro to, to, to defend white folk? Wow. On the air. Yep. So that's what he said. But, you know, I called him out on it, but I don't care because they, if anybody agrees with him, I was never going to convince him anyway. So, eh, those people already lost. Or, you know, you go on the Young Turks and they're like, you know, whatever is that? I was like, well, you need to teach history. You, you want to teach patriotic history. No, I want to teach true history. I want to teach slavery, but I just don't want to teach every black white person who owns slaves. Or, and I don't want to teach that every black person who was a slave. And I want to teach context. You talk about the founders. Tell me what Thomas Jefferson wrote about slavery. I don't give a damn what he wrote about slavery. He owned slaves and that's all that matter. Huh? Like a four year old. And I was like, OK. But I'm not there to convince you. I'm there hoping that maybe some liberal watches your show and they'll realize what I'm saying makes more sense than what you say. Most of the right. audience are going to beat me up and all his fans are going to be like, that guy's an idiot. But I don't care because they thought that they would have felt that anyway. So it doesn't affect me. So I only get beat up by extremists who, you know, are by nature extremists. And I think there's especially like maybe even more so in our modern political or cultural, if we can even divide those anymore. Um, it, the way things are divided, there are there are extremes on both sides, and 
when you interact with those extremes, you're probably not going to move a lot of those people that are actually at the extremes. But the people at the extremes also have platforms and are also loud. And so when you interact with those people, you can hopefully, by being the rational one, by being the more calm one, by being the one that's actually just trying to have a dialogue here, hopefully is when that's how you can kind of get the other people, the people that are on the sidelines, the people that aren't following this, all this nonsense all the time, they look at Charles love and they look at Tavis smiley asking that question. And maybe they're saying, well, where does Tavis smiley get off saying that to you? You know? So that, I guess that's, that's the hope there that you can just slowly find those people and realize that it's, it's not the extremes that actually, that it's not the extreme beliefs that are actually held by the, by the regular people, by the most people in the population. Um, it's just the extremes that are doing their best to divide us and doing their best to make sure we can't actually discuss about whatever those top five more important issues might be, or those top five issues that are affecting our lives more so than whatever extent racism is in fact, you know, affecting people's lives, which of course it does in some way, shape or form. In, in, in every context. Right. And, and that's the problem with focusing on the politics rather than the culture. You said something about the extremes on both sides. And I say this often. I wrote a piece in Newsweek about it is I hate I, I have to pick my battle. So I don't always fight it. Sometimes somebody pushes so far. I'll make a comment. But I hate both sides. I hate when people say both sides. And to be fair, I used to say it, too. And I'm trying to train myself out of it. Because one, depending on the argument, let's be real, both sides do the same thing because it's human nature. But one has more veracity and more opportunities to, with a louder voice and a bigger platform. So it's not even the same. You know, you know, some racist right winger in the basement on Twitter is not the same as a mainstream public somebody on the TV doing it. So it's not the same. But beyond that, I hate it mostly because it's not two sides. Right. So there are. People like me, who's conservative leaning, most libertarians who just who's somewhere in the middle and they just think, you know, I want I have this belief that the government is too big. I want freedom. And I don't think either party's really pushing it. But they're not Trump lovers, but they're also not on the on the on the left. Right. Then you have you have Republicans who are like, uh, you know, you got the people that say diehard Trump or the MAGA people. But you have people on the right who's just like, I just don't like what the left is doing. I'm not saying anything about MAGA. I don't want to talk about Trump at all. Right. But are they the same? But they get lumped in together. If you say you don't want to wear a mask, you're MAGA. But right. but then you have it's not as many as there are us. But then you have liberals who are like I'm a Democrat, the Bill Mars, the Maude Marins, the Peter Bogosian, the uh, Barry Weiss, the people like I'm traditionally liberal. And, you know, and, you know, I have voted Democrats in, in the past and, yeah, you know, no issues. And I've never really considered myself a conservative, but I'm speaking out against this this cancel culture. Greg Lukanoff, all these people. And now they're calling them MAGA, right? So anytime right. you we disagree with MAGA. But they're liberals, they're traditional liberals, right? Then you got the far left. So how do we do both sides when there is at minimum four sides? So how do we talk in the both sides, right? And we do that by pushing those marginalized people in the center to the left and right. And, and to be honest, most they just push them all to the right. So now all these Democrats are now MAGA people. They're all right, right wing, you know, people now, because if you go against, you know, Biden, Fauci, if you say Trump did anything right, you, you, you go to the extreme, right? That's kind of this thing too. I mean, if you, if you tell people enough, if you chastise people enough 
for being something they're not, at some point they just say, okay, fine, maybe I should, maybe I am more aligned with those people if you just won't even let me have a slightly differing view or if you're going to tell me because I don't want to take a vaccine, that means I'm a Trumper, that means I'm MAGA, that means I'm racist. And suddenly it's like, you know, we're not even having a conversation here. So if that's how it's going to be, fine, call me MAGA. I'll just go beyond that side then if that's what you want me to do. I think that's that's kind of what you're describing here. People are just being pushed so far that they see no other place. They see no other ally except maybe the MAGA people because they're being called that too. And they're being called racist too. And they're saying, they look around saying, well, we're all the people here that are rational or trying to be reasonable here. And they're the and we're all the ones being called racist. So what's actually going on here? Right. And I think they're going to go too far. It's going to cause a problem. Like, I don't know what it does for Trump because Trump's an anomaly. But in general, right, let's say Trump doesn't run and somebody else runs who's, a, you know, what they call a traditional Republican. And he makes it through the primary. I know for a fact, I think someone will do even do Trump, but I know for a fact many of my liberal friends already didn't like Biden. They hated Trump so much they might have voted for him. No way they're voting for both now. Some of them, I would say about 15% of them would vote for Trump if he ran again, which is shocking. Wow. But if any wow. other Republican run, they're making their first vote for a Republican. They hate Biden, right? So, but you pushed them there. Before they didn't even really care. You pushed them there, right? And it's all for different reasons because we're complex people. My brother's non-political, right? If, if he spoke, he doesn't talk at all. He doesn't pay attention. He doesn't watch the news. He's one of the 200. Yet I talk to him because he's my brother. We get along great. We never talk about politics, but we talk about different issues. That dude's a right winger now. I joke. You have to go listen to my show. I interviewed him <laughs> one, and I called him at the end of one segment. I called him a, a right wing uh, white uh, white supremacist. He's ba- he's a prepper. He's a gun nut. He's, wow. he's he's financially upper middle class now, even though he's a blue collar. But he's you know like a plumber. Somebody works so many hours, he makes all this money. So he thinks his taxes are too high, and he doesn't like. He sounds like a racist to me. Right. So let me that. So I'm like. So let me get this straight. So you would say taxes are too high, the government's too involved in your life, you want to hold on to your guns, and you're a fan of free speech. Who do you think that, now he votes though, he doesn't pay attention to it, but he, he feels an obligation to vote. Who do you think he's going to vote for in a presidential election? You think doesn't sound like Biden? Joe Biden. You think <laughs> doesn't vote sound for Biden? like Joe Biden. Yeah. He's not going to vote for Biden, and I don't think he's ever stayed home. Right. So he either just pulled D or every once in a while, I think I'll vote for that Republican. I like that. I, yeah, I'll vote for that guy. But I don't think he's going to stay home. So they're going to force this man who's traditionally voting Democrat to vote for a Republican. And then you got one issue voters. Right. So what if your issue is gun? What if your issue is a, a abortion and you're a pro-lifer, but you're not Republican, you're not conservative on anything else? See, people are complex. Right. What if your one issue is you hate cancel culture? I got black friends who are super liberal totally on Kavanaugh's side. Because they, I mean, they, they would say stuff to me like, man, what if somebody, remember how we were crazy in high school? What if somebody came right. back right now, I'm about to get a promotion and they just wanted me fired and I have to prove a negative. They, they're like, well, on August 13, 1989, you forced me in the backseat of a car and raped me. On what date? Well, where, where were you if you say you didn't do it? I'm supposed to know where I was in 1989? I don't know. Right. right? And so that freaked them out. They're like, if somebody could go, even if it's true, if somebody could come up and say that, and I have no way of defending myself, even if I'm guilty, I have a right to defend myself. Well, I can't. I don't have the memory. I didn't save receipts from where I was on that day. And now I lose my job. I don't know if you saw this real quick story, because I see these things as so extreme. Even if I don't think the person did something wrong, it doesn't mean I think they should go to jail, lose a job. 
And everybody talks about the race thing and all that. This is a key one for me. It was it was a guy who went to like a smoothie stop. His son is uh, is deathly allergic to peanuts. He said no peanuts. According to him, we didn't hear the conversation. So they give him a smoothie, gives it to his son. His son gets sick to the point he goes to the hospital. So of course he's upset. So he goes back and, and he's yelling about you up a peanuts tonight, and he throws it and he says a racist slur. The guy works for Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch fired him. So you're not going to take... I mean, what he did was wrong, but you're not going to take the context that the man's kid got rushed to emergency and almost died because some minimum wage worker put a peanut in his in his shake, and you just fire him for that? You can't discipline him and say what you did was wrong, but I understand because of what happened, how upset you were. So sure. we're going to do something else about this, but we're going to handle it. Then he's like, no, he has no place, and and f his son basically is what they say. I hope his son dies too. That's what we want to do. It's a natural reaction when when you see a loved one in in pain or or something like that. I mean, and and then you know it's someone's fault. You are filled with a fury and a rage that is indescribable. And if you are have to direct that somewhere, you might say something to that person that you know is going to hurt them too. And I'm not saying that makes it good right, or right, but it is wrong. it is human nature, right? And it's just like one other quick example because I, I got to give her credit. That was, do you, did you remember the viral video of the guy, some guy produces content writer who he has a book and everything. He's in the park at, in Brooklyn and he's walking his dog or something and they get into an altercation with this woman. And he says she's like uh, she's made some racist comment like I'm white. I could do whatever. Some silly comment. She's like 20 something. He's like 40. And so he goes on social media. She gets fired. He's bragging about it. Even Nicole Hannah Jones tweeted like, yeah, this don't feel right. It seems a little extreme. You cast on this 22 year old because even if she said it, eh, so she said, I got privilege or whatever she said. Really? You're a successful upper middle class black. You got into a beef with a neighbor. Don't you just walk it off? We can't walk it off anymore. But even NHJ said this is too far. Makes me think of uh, who was it who um, he, he filmed the the guy at the hotel who was kind of having a freak out. Uh, was it Nassim Tlaib? I don't want to. I don't want to get, get the name wrong. But uh, yeah, it, it was that kind of thing where, like, if you're trying to get this guy who's making like minimum wage or maybe just a little bit more, you're and you're very wealthy and famous, and you're trying to embarrass this person and get them fired because you perceive racism from them. Really, you're the one who's the elitist. You're the one who's really oppressing this kid. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's sad. So, I mean, I don't know. Unfortunately, the only way we can turn this stuff around is we, the people, right? You know, you got to get out and you got you got to go out and you, you got to be a lion. You all right. You got to go out and you have to act sitting around saying this is bad. It's not going to be enough. Right. And no politician, nobody. I, I you know, when I speak to I know it's a kind of sobering fact, but I tell people like I'll oh, speak at a really rah rah conservative event. Obviously, these people are active because they're coming out to the event. I'm like, who's the most popular uh, host on cable news? You know, conservative. Well, overall, they'll say Tucker. Like Tucker's got four million views. It's 330 million people in the country. And he's the top dog. Joe Rogan. Everybody like, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan get 10 million views. I'm like, it's 330 million in the country. Mm-hmm. It's just a blip. Yeah. If we could somehow even just reach half of the 200 million people, you're not going to convert them all. Some are going to be left- leftists. Some aren't going to care. But if you can reach them and you get 2 or 3% of them to act, speak up at a school board meeting, change their vote, do something. You win. That's all you need. Right. Right. I, I think I think you said it best there. You said, I mean, you need to be a lion and we all need to become our little movements of sorts uh, on whatever issue it may be, on whatever truth, whatever our own truth is or whatever is, you know, whatever problems we see in the world. We got to be out there 
creating our own movement about it. And whether it's just us having conversations one-on-one or whether it's starting a podcast or radio show or writing books, the more people we get doing that, the better dialogue we're going to be able to have and the better change in the cultures we're going to be able to see instead of just allowing, let's not say both sides, let's let's just say instead of allowing one extreme side to really control this entire dialogue, because that's what that's more accurate. Or if they can't do all that, they don't have time, donate to people like you and me. I mean, you can subscribe. That works too. You can, you, right? I mean, but seriously, it's like, well, I don't have time to do it, but I like what Mark is doing. People are always like, I love what, what y'all is doing. What can I do? I don't know. Go to my Patreon for my site and just give me money, right? Because it helps you do content. It helps you, you know, uh, exactly. improve the quality of your content. You can do ads that you can't afford to do ads on your own. But I mean, think about what you do for a living. Your time is valuable. This takes time to do. Nobody's yeah. paying me an hourly wage to to do this stuff. Mark didn't give Mark. You, you're not cutting me a check to do this podcast. Uh, we were going to talk about that. Oh, yeah. right. there, so, I, I mean, you know, so that's what you got to do. I mean, if you don't have time, but you got the money, donate. And I don't necessarily mean to me, even though I take it, but to anybody or whatever this podcast to an organization uh, to whatever you do. I mean, all those people that you like that you listen to and you follow are working to give you that content. So maybe you can't go to a, a march or a rally or go to some event, but you can help them put on an event, right? I mean, we do stuff like my organization. You know, there's no civics in school, so we want to do something. So we had a civics challenge. We flew some kids out to D.C. They got to meet the Supreme Court justice. They got to. Uh, you know, do a competition, win some money. Somebody had to donate money for that. So, I mean, there's ways you can help uh, financially if you want to, if you don't want to write a blog or do the other things, but do something. Talk to your family and friends. I think that's a great way to wrap up. Yeah, of course. And and talk to your regular people. I think that's that's something that seems to have been getting lost over the years. You hear more stories about people just you know, not, not even having holidays together and that sort of thing. So I think even more so, I don't want to say more so than supporting your favorite podcasters and radio hosts and authors and that sort of thing. Not, not more. Really, you got to like, support us. Like, not more than supporting us. After yes. you support us. We're after, gonna, right? We use our podcast <laughs> Once and that check is clear. or our book and, and flip through the pages. And I, and I say to that thing, you yeah. talk about the Thanksgiving and all that kind of stuff. People People were getting uninvited because there was a Trump versus authoritarian argument. This is mm-hmm. not what my book tells you to do. Right, like I right. said, an example, you just talked to them about the issue. What do you think about the filibuster, taxes, Uber, crime? And you let them tell you what they think. And based off what they think, you say, yes, that, that does make sense. And another thing is, and you give them a mm-hmm. And then we also need to do this. And what don't you think we should do this too? That's all you do. You don't, I never say Democrat or Republican, never say Biden or Trump. I say, sure. well, what do you want to do? You want to let people out of prison. Well, what do you do to somebody who murders? You tell me what you do with them. They might disagree with me, but they won't get mad. Yeah. And take, take an active interest in what they're trying to say yeah. and, and, and bring a more honest dialogue to things. Yeah. And of course, support your, everybody that is doing that as well. So, uh, Charles, before I let you go, why don't I, I never shut up about how people can support Lions of Liberty. So everybody knows that, but how can people support your work? If, uh, you know, if, if people have been listening to you today and have been saying that this guy, this guy's really hitting me, hitting me where I like it. So how can people go out and support everything you are doing out there? Well, the book, is Race Crazy, BLM 1619 and the Progressive Racism Movement. I would normally tell people to buy a copy, but now Amazon has it at half price. So you should buy it, buy them in twos. Uh, so you can do that to support, listen to my radio show, uh, the Charles Love Show, that's terrestrial radio, or the podcast I do with Shamika Michelle and Wilford Riley called Cut the Bull. We have some really interesting uh, guests there. Uh, Mark should come on, that'd be cool. But uh, yeah. Check out the podcast there. There's a Patreon page to uh, support um, that. And um, you can find, go to my website at thecharleslove.com. Just go there. You can 
you know, send me an email and, you know, we can chat or whatever. You know, I, I pretty much try to respond to everybody who reaches out to me, even when they hate me, which is kind of hard because I'm pretty awesome. So, yeah, it's, I'm easy to find. And I hope that you will uh, look me up. Oh, Twitter. C. Douglas Love 3, because I'm on Twitter pretty often. That's the only social media I kind of do. Excellent. Yeah, tw- Twitter's kind of my jam, too, as well. Uh, so, yeah, Charles, thank you so much. Really appreciate the great work. And uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you are indeed a lion. So keep up that great work. Keep on roaring. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Charles Love. I had a blast talking to him. And uh, as Charles kind of said, you got to support your favorite content creators. You got to support the people that are doing the things and talking about the things that you think are important. And if we are part of those people, part of those people, one of those people, some of those people, you know what I'm saying. If you want to support us, check us out at Patreon, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. That's where we have all sorts of different levels and tiers and rewards. At every level, you get all of our exclusive audio content, bonus shows like Conspiracy Corner, like Degenerate Gamblers, like Good Morning Fuckhead from Brian. Brian McWilliams, five days a week. Tons of great content over there. Um, Due to those great levels, one of the reasons I'm going to tell you about another show right now, a show called Good Morning Liberty, is because our friends Nate and Charlie have been longtime supporters of this show financially. So that is why not only are they great libertarian podcasters, they do an amazing show. Again, Good Morning Liberty. Check it out five days a week. They analyze the news uh, through the ideas of liberty, and they really, nobody does it better than these guys. No offense to Brian McWilliams. He's amazing, but he's only doing that once a week or so nate and charlie pounding it out five days a week talking about the day's news i mean that is just impressive so do check them out at good morning liberty on your favorite podcatchers or at their still amazing url bernielies.com uh they are aslan supporters that means they support us with a hundred dollars a month they've been doing that for i think like two years now so these guys deserve your support if you enjoy this podcast because they help support this podcast like you can also do at patreon patreon.com slash lions of liberty uh you can also find us on locals if you are patreon at first at lions of uh you can also donate directly at paypal.me slash lions of liberty and various other methods which you can find about on our website, lionsofliberty.com, our newly redone website, the new look, Lions of Liberty, the Lions of Liberty Network. Of course, another way to support me directly, if you haven't already, is to subscribe to my Lions of Liberty Mark Claire feed, Lions of Liberty with Mark Claire feed. Uh, you may be listening to this on the Lions of Liberty Network, but you can also find my shows every Monday there on the Lions of Liberty with Mark Claire podcast feed, where you also get some extra stuff uh, when I appear on other shows and that sort of thing. And of course, as always, you can find my Substack metanoia at markclair.substack.com my friends it has been a blast until next time that's right we're going to wrap up with some of that hot off the press brand new lions liberty music from my man john page so until next week my friends live long and live free and live free and live free and live free